0: Right, Duncan Green on the From Poverty to Power blog here. Um, Slightly unusual uh, podcast, this one, because A, we're sat up on a lovely sunny evening uh, at the allotment we have up uh, in Brixton, in London. Um, And so you might hear some sort of bird song and things like that. And that's very suitable because we're here to talk about climate and climate change. And the person I've got with me is an old friend uh, and a bit of a guru called Matthew Lockwood. Matthew I've known for a very long time. He wrote a book called The State Therein, uh, which was a big challenge to the orthodoxy of the time in the mid-2000s and challenge to the global campaigners who were underestimating the importance of politics and power, and in particular the role of the state in Africa and elsewhere. Um, and he had a big influence on me in terms of thinking much more about power and politics which is something I've been doing ever since so I wanted to talk to him about something else which has been coming up which is I got a comment on the blog recently saying why don't you talk about climate change anymore and I thought about it and thought, well the reason I don't talk about climate change is I don't read anything and I don't know anything about the politics and power of climate change what I tend to see is either what an Australian activist called bad shit facty facty reports which are you know everything's terrible here's a fact about climate change here's another fact about climate change here's another fact about climate change and then a sort of vague appeal for political will or if I ruled the world kind of reports which say I've got this great new plan for pricing carbon so just do it and neither of those is actually very useful politically because it doesn't explain about how we get from here to there. So Matthew Lockwood is brilliant on how we get to here, from here to there. He's got a blog which he's just revived called Political Climate, which is absolutely brilliant. I totally recommend it. And I've got him here with a beer on a sunny evening to explain to me where the politics is on all this. Matthew, hello. Hello,
1: hello. <laughs> uh, can you can you live <laughs> up to that intro? <laughs> yeah, it's a big intro. But so thanks very much for thanks very much for having me along. So let's start with Extinction Rebellion. Yes, okay. good so, place to
0: start. So we have got Extinction Rebellion. Everybody's getting incredibly excited. Huge mobilisation. What does it mean politically? What will make it different from Occupy in the sense of a big upsurge, which then downsurges?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I don't. I mean. OK, so I think, I think Extinction Rebellion is probably a little bit different from Occupy. It's a different, you know, it's a different period. Um, Occupy, I think, was very much of its time. What Extinction Rebellion slightly makes me think of is that about ten years ago, we had a big wave of public concern in the UK and in, around the world, actually, um, about climate change. It was the first time that climate change really cut through and became big in the public mind. And you saw a lot of responses, a lot of political responses um, from politicians, from policymakers, um, like in the UK, for example, that was the time that we got the climate change act and everything that's followed from that. Um, and so this sort of 10, 15 years on is another wave of, it's another wave of, 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 uh, awareness in the public that, you know, this is really now a pressing issue, but there are also some differences. The last time round, it was much more led from the top. If you like, it was led from people like David King, the chief scientist, um, the CBI were involved, the Confederation of British Industry, um, uh, and even Tony Blair was playing a leading part. So it was led as much but from the top as below. But this time around it's, it feels to me much more like it's coming from below. It's coming from Greta Thunberg and the climate strikes, the school climate strikes. It's coming from Extinction Rebellion. Um, and so I think it's the same but different. And the key question there is, is it, and you, you know, you made reference to Occupy, the key question is, is it going to just then dissipate uh, and, and disappear? The last time we had this sort of big wave of what a political scientist called an issue attention cycle, um, it did last, you know, it lasted, started in early 2004, it peaked around uh, 2006, and then by sort of 2008, and eight, nine, it was on the way out, but that's still several years. of of quite heightened concern. And so I think that when it comes to climate change, uh, it's a huge issue um, and the potential for people to have this sort of heightened awareness of it is quite big. Um, And then what? And and also this time round, I think it's much more convincing. There's much more kind of stuff that you can feel that makes it feel like like it's an issue. Um, Big heatwaves this summer, but even last summer, there were lots of heatwaves around Europe Farmers are getting worried. Um, it just has, each time we go through this kind of episode, it has more credibility.
0: So how does that then turn into yeah. the two the two things? One yeah. is legislation, mm-hmm. political action, and the other one is mass consumer action. Um,
1: I'm giving yeah. you all the easy okay. questions yeah, yeah, up yeah. front. So let's, well, do, let's deal with the politics I, think, I first. actually think the, poli- the political response is kind of easier than the, ma- the mass response, really. So. Um, the, I, I referred earlier to this thing called the issue-attention cycle, and it's an idea that comes from an American political scientist called Anthony Downs. And a very, it's very, he was very prescient, really. Um, his, his example was about environmental concern um, back in the 70s. And one of the things that he said was that what happens when you get this big upsurge of, of concern about an issue, it can be any, it can be any, any issue really, um, it suddenly gets on the radar, politicians want to do something about it, and already we've seen politicians declare a climate emergency, and uh, and actually, you know, in the UK they've embraced the idea that we're going to become a net zero by 2050. And what happens is, and this is what Down says, is that you then get a kind of institutionalisation of that concern. So politicians sort of think, oh God, we've got to address this. People are asking us about this, or well, they're kind of protesting about it. We've got to do something. We need a law, and so or they, a yeah, yeah, exactly. We need something. a law or a committee or a new institution, a new body, and so they do that. They they bring in new policy. They set up a new body like the climate change committee and so on. And then, partly because actually politicians have been uh, seem to be doing something in response to that concern, people start to think, okay, I've it's got it. kind of handled now. We can kind of stop worrying about things. And it's I think it's possible. Um, so you get waves you know, that of, will happen again. You get, again this you get time waves well. of
0: reforms in response to waves of public agitation, and they're they're sort of incremental improvements, but they're nowhere near the speed or the depth that the the climate science seems to require.
1: That's right, and the other thing is, is that I think it also, you know, the the sense that something is being done now, can then, it doesn't necessarily mean that something is being done.
0: I mean, plastic straws really aren't the main issue.
1: No, so I mean, I guess the point is, is that you know we had this big wave of concern ten, fifteen years ago about climate change. We set up the climate change committee. We had the climate change act, and so on. And it is true that emissions in the UK, measured in a certain way, have come down. But you know, people haven't stopped flying. People haven't stopped driving around in their cars. They, we haven't seen huge reductions in the amount mm-hmm. of energy that people are using. In fact, it's and and of course globally the problem is, is worse than it was ten years ago, fifteen so, years ago. So sometimes the what appears to be a response can leave people into a false sense of security that something or complacency that something is being done when in fact actually not enough is being done so
0: let's move on to the social part of this then so so you're looking at a mass change of behaviours both in terms of corporates in terms of production in terms of consumption Are there any precedents for this? I mean, you know, if I think back to the equivalent when I was um, a teenager, was the nuclear threat. But that, that decision could be made by relatively few politicians, could make it go away. Whereas this is something which is going to require an enormous change across society. What are the historical precedents for this kind of thing? Is there anything we can learn from, or is it just completely unknown territory?
1: Well, I mean, that's a really good question to which I don't know, the, I don't think there was a full answer really. I mean, one of the, the example that's often used by campaigners, and you see this all the time, is the, is the Second World War, when there were sort of mass changes in behaviour in response to um, kind of the threat of war or, or the needs of the needs of the state during wartime and so on. Um, I think that history shows that those didn't come immediately and they weren't necessarily as straightforward or easy as we think of them now. But And so you often get people saying, oh, well, you know, this is just like the threat of the war and we must, you know, we must use that to mobilize people to change, change their behavior. But I don't think, I don't think that works for a number of reasons. I think that it's, um, I think it works for a few people, but for the mass of people, um, it it doesn't work. And so in that sense, even though we use the language of climate emergency, people aren't actually acting as if it really is an emergency. It really isn't. I mean, climate
0: change is so not Hitler, yeah. is it,
1: really? No, well, it's not. It's, yes. I mean, even though actually the changes, people can see the changes now coming in, they're still not, they're still not act, reacting in such a way as if it was this sort of immediate threat. Um, so I think it's a big problem. I mean, I think, so, to break it down into two, There's almost two routes ahead of us, I suppose, in terms of getting people to change their behaviour or what they do, and how society is sort of constructed en masse. Um, And there are these two different camps, um, or it often seems that there are these two different camps. One is the people, uh, we've just been talking about this earlier, about the the sort of degrowth peak camp, where people say, well, you just have to have a big, you have to stop chasing after economic growth, you have to value different things, people should stop consuming so much, doesn't make them happy anyway. Um, but that's pure. Just, if I ruled the world, they and that is a little bit. If they I don't have a politics to I, get there, that's right. So, and in some senses, I have some sympathy with that. You know, it's, of course, it's a nice idea, but that's the big question. If I rule the world, how are you going to get there? What's the politics of that? Um, it, it really, there's no sign at all that, to me, that that's a viable. There's a viable political path to that at the moment. Um, What's the other camp? And the other camp is the is the technology will save us camp, um, and that's. At the moment, that seems more likely to happen. I mean, it, is, it you could say it is happening in certain ways, partly because that's the, the route that governments and, uh, and big companies feel comfortable with, and so therefore it's more likely to happen, <laughs> precisely because those very powerful forces are behind it. I think the question there is not so much will it happen or not, because there are all sorts of forces driving us down that route, but will it be enough fast enough?
0: Well, I think there's another question on technology, which we'll come back to in yeah. a minute, on who's going to be saved and who's going to be left outside. But let's talk about that in a minute. Yeah. I mean, I want to, there's another, um, I think there's another route I would point to, which is something like the Reformation. So if you're looking at a mass change in behaviors, attitudes, beliefs, the kind of thing you need in, in climate change, the kind of enormous mass um, social change that happened in the Reformation might be a model, in which case you're looking at something much more profound in terms of religious belief, in terms of something much more normative than, you know, policy change and clever campaigning. And I think that, that uh, Alex Evans, I think, is quite convincing on this in The Myth Gap and talking about the need to get back to religious narratives because they're the only ones that actually get deep enough, fast enough to, to, to pursue, the, to, to trigger the kind of changes we need. Any thoughts on on the Reformation <laughs> as a model? I mean, the, well, the, I the, you know, we, yeah. we had a, just to finish on that, yeah. we had a conversation a while ago on, um, when was the last time when one generation sac- made major sacrifices for three generations time, which is what is being required now in terms of consumption. And the one we came up with was medieval cathedrals, you know, where people would put money into a cathedral and it wasn't gonna be finished for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, And so are we in yeah, that it's... sort of space? And if so, what does that mean for campaigning? Yeah.
1: Okay, I mean, there's actually, there's two questions in there. There's one about religion and change of ideas, and there's one about generational change. Um, and they're rather different, but just to... so let's start with the religious one. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea and I think it, or at least I think it talks to something about the need for a more fundamental change in the way that people think about the world, especially the material world, what we're doing and so on. I'm not convinced about the religious route. Um, I don't know Alex's, Alex Evans work that well, but I know that, you know, I think that's the route that he's pursuing at the moment. I think that, especially if you're thinking about a society like the UK, you, if you're looking for something like that, it, it's probably going to be something that's more secular in nature. But somehow, as profound as the religious, as a change in the re- way in the religious universe, if you like, I actually think, in in Sports, some senses, maybe. Well, no, I think it's what I think it's about is really about our relationship with the natural world. Um, I think that that is the, you know, that because of that root, really, that's what it's about. It's about the use of materials. It's about the way that we take in energy from the environment or the kind of sources we're using for energy, um, and how we manage and how we and also how we relate to things like biomass in the environment and so on.
0: So, But that we're 98% urban in the UK. I mean, that's, that, those links have become very tenuous.
1: Yeah, that's true. And so that's another challenge of how to do it. But basically, it, 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 what I think is interesting about it, intellectually at least, which is always what drives me, is it's about a fundamental change in the way that you view, you view nature from this sort of post-enlightenment uh, kind of classic, progress view of control of nature to a different accommodation, a different way of living with nature. Um, and that starts, you know, 40 years ago that would have sounded very hippy, but now I think you can increasingly see that idea um, seeping into mainstream uh, public institutions, private institutions, companies. It's more about an adaptive relationship that we where we learn from nature and try to mimic nature um, and find an accommodation with nature which isn't so controlling. So actually, I see, there's quite a lot of interesting stuff, or I find it interesting, about rewilding in Europe and Britain at the moment. And I think that um, that's the kind of thinking we need, actually, to also start thinking about climate change, because it, re- it, it changes your relationship with the way that we think about things. Um,
0: interesting. OK, I want to get on to technology. Yeah, um, OK.
1: So, you know,
0: <laughs> I think the NGOs, you know, I work for Oxfam, um, I think the NGOs have a sort of tough time with technology. They tend to divide the world into nice and nasty technologies. Large technologies tend to be nasty. Dispersed technologies like mobile phones tend to be nice. But they don't really want to have the technology conversation. On climate change, they see technology as letting people off the hook. So this is about a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. And what we really want to go for is the degrowth, is the sacrifices, the end to consumerism, is a bunch of other issues, which I think politically are an incredibly hard sell. So I agree with you i actually think technology is the likely end game of this attempt to to sort out the climate change problem what i worry about is that technology is imbued with power and inequality just like everything else and the people who are going to benefit from geoengineering are going to be the people in power and if they dump a million tons of iron filings into the sea it's not going to be off kent or sussex where you live it's going to be off africa or somewhere much less powerful um, and with much less voice so you're going to get the response to climate change actually exacerbating inequality and suffering of people who are at the sharp end already. And so I I see a future role on technology for organizations like Oxfam as as being much more bearing witness, being the sorts of watchdogs on what's happening with these technological responses because it could get very ugly. But but, but, But that means kind of accepting that politics won't work. So I can see why people find that very
1: upsetting. Any thoughts? On that? Well I, I mean, my answer to that is yes. <laughs> you know, well, I agree. That's <laughs> quick. I agree with Duncan. I mean I think that's all right, that's all yes, that's, that's all a very, you've summed it up very, very nicely, it's, it's the big, I mean in, in some senses the, the as, bef- as I was saying before, the world's been split between those who say uh, it's all about you know reducing consumption and um, degrowth, on, and on the other hand there are the kind of techno-optimists who just say oh know it's all going to happen with technology and this is the safe way to do it and so on. And actually, all the distribution issues get, they fall in the middle, and the politics falls in the middle. Um, I think there are always, I mean, it's, this is a big theme uh, in a the bit of the University of Sussex where I, where I work, is that there are always multiple possible pathways. You know, nothing is predetermined. And you do see, take for example that issue of centralized versus decentralized technologies, you do see different countries pursuing different routes, actually, often quite, quite radically different routes. Quite different patterns of ownership and control over technologies um, in things like renewable energy. For example, Germany versus the UK is an obvious example. Um, but it's always a kind of political uh, balancing act. Um, and so that and but in a way we shouldn't be that surprised. I mean there's, there's nothing that makes technological response to climate change different from any other kind of human activity. Of course it's going to have politics, vested interests, power politics in it. Um, and I said, th- but, but I think y- you shouldn't go from there to saying, well, it will, it will always therefore be um, the powerful who win out. I actually think there is, you know, otherwise, if that were true, then Oxfam would just give up and go yeah, to, home. And know. mobile phones would be a bad thing. Yeah, things. exactly. So, so it's always, and there are always opportunities, technology that can open up new possibilities and so on. So, um, And actually a good thing about renewables is that they can be much more easily decentralised than say a nuclear power station or a a coal-fired power station. Um, They're a different kind of type type of technology and so they have that potential. The question is whether we'll use it or not.
0: So in that sense the environmental movement, if you can contrast environmentalism and developmentalism, the environmental movement is much more consciously pursuing a decentralised technological solution through renewables. Whereas, as far as I can see, the development NGOs, development campaigners, just haven't really come to grips with anything to do with the technology on, on climate change.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, because, I mean the other thing is, though, that what what you need, what development campaigners want, I suppose, is they want, well, it's, it's a neat point, I assume that they... <laughs> They want also people to have access. I to, should say you were energy. a development campaign. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, I didn't no say way. this in yeah, the intro. Yeah. So Matthew um, has worked at DFID, at ActionAid, at Christian Aid, so he knows of what he speaks. Yeah, um, so I mean because it, obviously in the background in the development question, especially in really low-income countries, there's the whole energy access issue, and that's and that obviously it cuts, it cuts across the climate change issue, presents huge challenges to, to it, well they present huge challenges to each other, and Renewable energy and very often uh, distributed small scale renewable energy appears to be the solution. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think there's reasons to be optimistic about that. Um, I think there's, there are sort of supply chain and material issues to do with, you know, solar PV increasing a hundredfold over the next five, ten years or whatever. Um, but I do think. It's in a way more we're in a more optimistic situation than we were 20 years, 15 years ago. Okay. Um, so, but I think as always, it's all the question of who owns this technology, who controls it, um, who has access to it. Those are always going to be there. Are always going to be the questions.
0: So I just want to finish by asking you to do an ad. Right? <laughs> so tell us why we should be signing up to the Political Climate Blog and what you plan to be doing with it over the next few years. It was you did it a, a while ago you then stopped because of work and other yeah. stuff and having kids and so on you're now kind of ready to relaunch so give us your
1: pitch yeah well I mean the blog has always been about um trying to think about climate policy in particular in a political way that's the sort of that's the that's the lift uh, the lift pitch two minute pitch um and so broadly speaking it's going to be about that what I'm at the moment what I think where I 've come to I suppose is that I spent quite a lot of time uh, being an academic over the last five or six years um, and reading a lot of theories about climate, the politics of climate policy um, and but what I see is I see a big gap between all of that stuff on the one hand and people trying to make change in practice on the ground on the other both in gov- you know, people people in companies in governments, in NGOs, um, and governments and NGOs and on the one hand, the theory stuff is very interesting and I think has some really important insights. Like in it. you
0: were saying on the Extinction Rebellion question with yeah, the attention exactly. c- cycle.
1: Yes, there are sort of models and ideas that we can use, especially uh, about what's going on differently in different countries, which is really, I think, gives us a lot of purchase. Um, but it's, it's quite abstract, very often it's quite quantitative. It doesn't necessarily help you directly if you're a campaigner or if you're someone who's trying to make a change in the government or or, or within a company. And so I guess partly what I want to use the blog for is to to translate some of that stuff into forms which um, could be more useful, but also to test it out, I think, because it also goes the other way. Like There are lots of very clever people in academia who've got their models and they think it all fits. But actually, of course, as we know... um, From trade, the (laughs) the real world is always more complex. Um, You know, uh, it's uh, it's the and and that's really we need to be feeding that back into into think, you know, further thinking about um, trying to theorise what we what 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 is this all about? Um, I mean, I remain pretty optimistic, um, but I think uh, it's you know for a whole bunch of reasons. This is a particularly pivotal time. If I can just have another two or three minutes. Go. I think one thing we haven't covered so far is just what's going on at the moment, which is that it does seem that the next, certainly the next five years, is really critical for some sort of global mm. response, which globally produces a, 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 a ceasing of emissions growth and, a, and, a, and, a, and at the beginning of a downturn. But, of course, we're in also a pivotal moment where inequality and lots of changes in people's lives and society and economy have led, across the, certainly across the Western world, a turn towards populism. And a type of populism which is nationalist and is it makes it, it, throws up a real challenge for climate policy. So I think we're trying to do the most difficult bit at the most difficult time. Um, and so while the technology is helping us at the moment in terms of costs and things like that, I think the, the politics is, is really hard at the moment. You
0: nearly ended on an upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> okay couldn't
1: (laughs) couldn't couldn't finish without bringing it down again
0: (laughs) all right matthew lockwood thank you very much so his blog is political climate i absolutely urge you to take a look at it
1: politicalclimate.net
0: politicalclimate.net thank you and he's promised to feed the blog regularly over the next few weeks so that you'll have something new to read thank you very much matthew